You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. On today's show, we're going to run through uh, some interesting, controversial uh, headlines about COVID and masks. Uh, We'll talk about drones potentially getting as big as 747s an amazing new motor from BMW, and we'll hit news about Whisk, Eve, flying car, safety debates, aviation news, and more. So, Alan, let's jump into it first here. This uh, airline in Portugal called TAP, their CEO has said that they believe masks will be worn maybe forever. Uh, here's the quote from their CEO. Uh, we have to put in, into place so many additional protocols I am absolutely convinced they will stay forever. Now, this might be referring to other like cleaning protocols, stuff like that, which would be reasonable. Like I think a lot of people said, hey, some of this cleaning stuff we've done is pretty great because obviously the flu and other you know seasonal diseases have gone way down. So maybe there's something to this. That makes sense. But it seems like they're, uh, she's implying that the masks might stay on airplanes, which I just, what's your take on that, Alan? I don't think there's any way that's going to happen in in the United States. I, there's going to be a revolt. There already is a revolt going on right now. And when we have 70% of the uh, flight crew customer interactions, violent interactions being related to masks, then you're just asking for more of that. And if you if you throw out this edict, in my opinion, if you throw out this edict of the masks are going to last forever, you're going to have a, a change of, of where people use transportation, that, that they'll stop flying for things that they can stop flying and take other modes of transportation. Obviously, crossing the oceans is a little hard, but internally, like in the United States, we're internal to Portugal. I assume you can take trains or, or drive, and that may be the alternative. It, it becomes less convenient, right? Isn't it, Dan, isn't airlines just a convenience thing for a lot of people? Get there quick. Right, you can get there quicker, right? It saves time, right? But if it's such a pain in the backside, then you you weigh that off and say, well, I don't know if I really want to do that. And it, it doesn't it also imply, I think the opposite is true. Doesn't it imply that the, that the airplanes are dirty? <laughs> That's the way I looked at it. Like, well, it, it's just saying the airplanes are dirty and I have to protect myself from the airplanes itself because the airplanes are an unsafe space. That, I don't know if, if any airline CEO ought to be imply even remotely implying that because I think that's what it implies. Like, I don't need it when I'm at the grocery store, but I need it on this airplane. That, that's a, a, a confluence of bad press to me that, that I don't know if any U.S. airline CEO would even get near. Do you, do you think so? No, and it, I mean, airlines are proven to be very well ventilated, right? We've known that since the beginning, that they, they turn their air over, like every air molecule in the cabin is replaced every, what, three minutes? So it's quite the opposite. Boeing and Airbus have said the same thing. They've all done the studies. It isn't like we haven't looked at it. And if we're, if we're saying that science is now <laughs> interpretive, I, I I don't know where we go from here. It it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me right now. And I, I hopefully that the customers, particularly the ones that are the business travelers on these airlines, start pushing back because there's the ones that can really hurt an airline the the, the fastest. If if those ten thousand dollar tickets can hurt you. If they don't show up, I just can't. I just can't imagine that the CEO of TAP would really believe that airplane mask mandates could be a forever thing. And maybe that's was taken out of context. 
And maybe again, maybe she's referring more to just some of the cleaning protocols, which, like I said, probably do make sense to keep long term. I'm all for. Yeah. I mean, a cleaner, cleaner airplane is always better than a slightly less clean airplane. Like, sure. But yeah, there's no way mass mandates are going to be um, lo- a long term thing when thing life gets back to normal ish. Right. And we've all been on airplanes and, and thought to ourselves, man, this airplane is dirty. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm sitting there. Let me change seats because they don't necessarily get cleaned all that much. And if we see food and debris and trash everywhere, then in, in the back of your head in these sort of post COVID days, I'll call them, you're thinking, well, what other diseases are floating around from that seat? If, if that's trashy, Visually, it's also going to be trashy and things I can't see, bacteria, viruses, whatever. That worries, I think it's going to worry a lot of passengers. And I do think having traveled a decent amount on these airplanes where they have been cleaning them, the airplanes are so much nicer because nothing's sticky. You're not sitting in anything sticky. You don't have coffee poured on the on, on, the, on the floor. It, it just things are cleaner and it just feels like a more pleasant experience. And hopefully the airlines will continue that to some level. Well, moving on, uh, and this, this is another thing that's uh, very interesting if this could come to fruition, uh, this company Nautilus, and they have a, they've wind tunnel tested a couple uh, scale models and they're hoping to have a full scale prototype in 2023. Uh, But their goal is to have Boeing 747 size cargo aircraft with a blended wing design that will be drones. They'll be autonomous to transport cargo. Um, Alan, this seems like a, such a big stretch because A, it's such a big aircraft and B, it's it's also a really unique design. I mean, how many blended wing aircraft of any type, obviously they'd have to be manned by a, a pilot. Are there any blended wing designs besides like the B, was it the B-2 stealth bomber like in design t- today? Oh, yeah. Military. Yeah. All the military ones are all blended, blended wing sort of things. And uh, nothing commercial at the at the moment. I think that was all based out of a Lockheed design way back in the 50s. Those uh, sort of B-50, B-2-ish designs. Uh, and NASA has played around with the sort of the wing body emergence uh, designs. And, and I think Boeing talked about that also internally for a while. That maybe their next generation will look like that. Uh, the, the I, I don't the, the drone issue in the United States is, is in a weird spot right now because we all feel like drones will be the future that we need to have drones doing cargo moves or bringing us our KFC or Taco Bell, whatever we're going to have drones do for us. That's imperative. Yeah, that's imperative. Yeah. Chick-fil-A, they have great customer service. Uh, they will for sure be sending drones to your house. Yeah. And the and the Chick Fil A mafia will just keep ranking in that cranking in that money because it just is delivering a service. And I think the the risks are low, right? The the risk reward of that the 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 risk side is that the drone falls and it lands in the street and somebody runs over your your Chick Fil A sandwich. And the reward is Chick Fil A sells more sandwiches. <laughs> That's the equation. Not too big a deal. Yeah, right. And if you have a seven forty seven full of Chick Fil A's and it falls out of the sky, that's that's a bigger deal to me. And I, I wonder if that. Uh, if the FAA can even really accommodate that. Yeah, and it seems like a huge national security risk to have really big drones that could be potentially hacked. You know, like this has been the year of realizing that even the best companies in the world get hacked, which is terrifying. Even companies that make cybersecurity software like SolarWinds get hacked. So the idea that these could be just 
oh, they're good up there in the sky, cruising, you know, over the Atlantic, bringing cargo over and just never be, that's, that's terrifying. They, be, they would become a missile, you know, you think back to 9-11, it's scary. Yeah, it's one pilot, how much does that cost? Not that much money in, you know, relative terms. Yeah. It won't be one pilot. I mean, those size aircraft are going to be a crew of a minimum two, maybe four as they switch off. But yeah, what's the problem with, if the aircraft's so efficient, then the cost of pilots kind of gets washed out of it. And something that, that size, the, the pilots can get removed in a sense, cost wise, and it doesn't matter anymore. And sort of in that same framework, they're talking about getting funding at like a $900 million level to to build this prototype and to get things up and running that's let's just round it up to a billion dollars so they're gonna have a billion dollars to build this thing i'm not sure you can do that for a billion dollars when joby's talking about building a little 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 electric aircraft for a yeah for a billion dollars so 747 in today's world i feel like it's probably five times that amount because it's the buildings and the people and the stuff it, it's, it's probably a five billion dollar exercise that's really hard to do in this environment of uh, everybody's reaching out for high growth opportunities and inflation so high airplanes don't tend to be a place where companies want to invest in and people want to invest in right now yeah and this company nautilus uh they've been they were founded in 2016 and they announced uh, six billion in pre-orders for 440 aircraft you know and so but we've seen that with lots of the evtol companies that people just hey yeah we're interested in this idea and but again this company's doesn't have a full size prototype yet. So they're very far away from, like you said, getting it in, in, into production. And um, like you said, the challenges for being a full size, large aircraft are significant. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But it's a, definitely an interesting concept. Obviously, the idea of moving freight across an ocean or, or wherever, and I'm not sure that that's their main goal. But they do talk about how, you know, freight by sea is 13 times cheaper, uh, but it takes 50 times longer. So obviously doing this plane you know, like like the, the the use case certainly makes sense uh but like you've said on so many episodes just the execution and the financial component is really really significant where it all happens right well moving on into other tech trends and this is interesting bmw uh, and of course like tesla's been obviously the innovator in the electric vehicle space uh, but BMW has just churned out a really impressive motor that a lot of people are talking about, um, and it has no magnets. So, Alan, why is this significant, and where might this this technology trickle down, or could it trickle up into aviation? Yeah, I guess it's trickling up from locomotives into the automobile world, and then from automobiles, you got to wonder if it's going to trickle into the aviation world too. So they're moving away from a permanent magnet motor. So if you think of the outside of a motor is where all the coils or wires are on the outside, and you got that rotating part in the inside called the rotor. The rotors on a permanent magnet motor are permanent magnets. So there's permanent magnets on the spinning part. And so what you do is you create an electric field that spins around in, on the outside on the stator, and the permanent magnets sort of follow that field around. So it's kind of a... Uh, a dog leading the pony kind of thing. So it, that's the basic motor. And there's a lot of reasons why you want to do it that way. It's less, it tends to be less expensive or has been less expensive. It's, uh, um, you can use regenerative techniques. So brake, like in Tesla, I think these are for braking to generate some electricity back. And it's not a small amount. It's, it's several percentage points. It can, can get generated back into the, into the drive, into the battery system. Uh, and, but the problem 
right now, in which everybody is becoming extremely aware about, is China holds most of those magnetic materials. And they're concerned that that's going to get cut off or China's going to have internal disputes, which is going to cut off access to Germany, United States, uh, you know, pick any country that uses those magnets. What are you going to do? If you can't get the magnets, you need to have a plan B. And the plan B is to go back to revert back to sort of the original motors, which have brushes and commutators. So the, in, the outside of the motors is coils of wire. The rotor is also coils of wire. And there's a connection between the two, essentially. The, the problem with it is you have brushes. So anybody who's played around with motors as a kid or, or, or messed around with some brush, brush motors is that there's brushes and those brushes wear. They're making contact as the motor spins. Those brushes are constantly making contact. There's arcing going on in there and all kinds of carbon dust and things and they get dirty over time and those motors wear out you have to maintain them it'd be like more like an internal combustion engine like changing the oil so you have to clean up those brushes replace the brushes uh, put a new set in get rid of all the carbon stuff that's floating around and just keep maintenance up on them so it's a more maintenance and intense system but then if you can't get magnets you got to have plan b and what uh, everybody who's moving to is moving to old school with some new technology thrown on top of it. Does, does that make sense to how that, how that works? It does. And, you know, there's still a lot to shake out in the EV space and in the space all over with electric motors. Like there's just not a clear, you know, there's today's best way to do it. But is today's best way going to be the same way three years or five years from now? Probably not. So it, it's all these different iterations seem like a good thing for the industry. Yeah. And like you said, if they don't need magnets and there's some suddenly a crisis of getting them in a couple of years, which who knows what could happen. Obviously, we experienced that with the pandemic. You know, they're in a, they're in a good place to to weather that storm where they could be the only kind of like in Forrest Gump when he's the only shrimp boat out to sea when that storm hits. And then suddenly Bubba Gump shrimp is the shrimp everyone's going to get, you know, so could be something like that. So it seems like a good uh, good hedge for them uh, to keep pushing the envelope and developing alternative technology. So let's move on, uh, jump into our EVTOL space for today. Uh, so the U.S. Attorney General has decided not to bring charges against the Archer employee who was the focus of WISC's civil lawsuit against them. So, Alan, obviously we, we've covered this in pieces over time, over the last year. Um, you know, why did they come to this decision? Well, they felt like they didn't have a federal case. That doesn't mean the civil case won't continue on. It, it will, I think. The, the what the the feds would get involved if there's movement of sensitive material or corporate material across state lines that becomes a federal offense and then the feds will come in and start investigating it whether they des decide to prosecute or not there's so many factors in that it, it doesn't actually say why they gave up on uh, pursuing a case at the federal level you don't who knows right it could be it could be for hundreds of reasons. But I don't think that Whisk is going to let with Whisk slash Boeing is going to give up on this pathway. And we were having discussions eternally in, in WeatherGuard here about this particular issue. And the, the consensus was I, I don't have to take documents out to transfer knowledge to the next company. That, that would be rare. I mean, why? if you're smart, you should never well, you should never do that anyway, because you, know, you end up being you know, brought in front of the Department of Justice. But most of the things lie in your head and the, the way you think 
through problems gets defined by the way you solve the previous problem. So you're going to take that same solution to the next company you're going to work for. You see that a lot in aviation where engineers move from one place and they bring their ideas over. I think WISC still has some uh, cause here to be of concern because the Archer design looks a lot like the WISC design. And the people from WISC moving over to Archer doesn't feel right and probably shouldn't feel right. But Dan, think of it this way. Every, we have the right to work in the United States. I can leave a company A and go to work for company B. Now, there, there's labor laws and, and contracts you can sign that would prevent you from doing that. But a lot of those are getting tossed out lately. And I think in some states they're not even allowed because it's, it's taken away your ability to earn an income. Right. Um, particularly if you're laid off. I, I think that one's completely unfair. If, if company A lays you off and says you can't work anywhere in the industry, that, that that's not right. Come on. You just decided to get rid of me. That doesn't make any sense. But if you walk away from company A and go to company B for a raise, promotion, better working conditions, air conditioning, whatever that may be, uh, then I kind of feel like, yeah, I have to, as an engineer, not bring that technology with me. I, I may have a, a way to solve problems in my head, but Dan, I just can't say, well, you know, the way that we did it at WISC is blah, blah, blah. That's not really how it should go down. And we're talking about billion dollar companies now. <laughs> they can hire a lot of lawyers. And as an engineer, I don't think you want to be in the middle of that, but it, it's too late, right? We're, we're way beyond negotiating now. I, I think this is going to get settled in a courtroom. You know, like you said before, it, it's hard to say, you know, if you're bringing actual documents, like I was watching a, uh, I have two Netflix references that are relevant. Hey, I was watching one about espionage with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, this is about, you know, based on true events that, you know, they're stealing, uh, from spying on the Soviets for a long time, getting secrets back. That's one thing where you're taking evidence of documents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this other movie that maybe you've seen, which I enjoyed, uh, is called The Book of Eli. And it's a post-apocalyptic world where there's no books left. And Denzel Washington's character has a King James Bible, and he's walking across trying to find the place where it belongs so that, you know, this book can be, you know, have the power that it had to do good. And you don't realize till the end that he's blind. The book's written in Braille. So I, I apologize for spoiling it. Dang it. Shouldn't have done that. Oh, dang it. I haven't seen that one. <laughs> <laughs> and I love Denzel Washington, too. Come on. Spoiler alert. Anyway, um, but he gets there, but he loses possession of the book along the way. And finally, he gets to his destination. And he says, I have in my possession the King James Bible. And he proceeds to sit down and read the Bible and someone transcribes it. So that's where the IP, I'm sorry if I've spoiled this, this I've spoiled this movie for you. because Oh, well, you, you totally have, actually. Yes, I have. Uh, still worth watching. But that kind of like sounds like the same kind of IP thing. Like he said he had, he said he had a King James Bible. He didn't, not physically, but he had memorized it over 30 years of reading it. So... Can you hold him to account for stealing that work? I think on one hand, you kind of could because it's like he transcribed the book word for word, but it was also in his head. So what did he steal? It's it's a really complex problem. I'm not sure I'm saying that's, that's exactly what happened here, but it's just a general you know, example of how intellectual property could get passed. Like if you can memorize a lot of it, redraw it, this is what they did, that, you know, it's, it's just, it's a complicated system. And also, you know, the supply chain. 
I think that's probably one of the, the bigger pieces of information. Where do they get X? Where do they get Y? And, and who are the contact points at these companies where you can buy this same thing from? Right. And that, that can tell you a lot about an airplane. If you know who the suppliers are, you can really delve down pretty quickly. That's how investors do it. Same way. They look at where they're buying parts from. Right. And that'll tell you a lot about who's working, what and how much it costs to make it. That's part of the knowledge base. And walking away with that, you got to be really careful doing that because it is they did pay you to work at their company. And they feel like you've walked off with things that you don't own. Understandable. It's understandable. It's a complicated process, so we'll see how that continues to play out in the, the in civil court. So moving on, uh, Eve has announced um, some of their plans for type certification uh, for their EVTOL and just sort of reaffirmed their commitment to getting into compliance sooner than later. Um, so Alan, what does this mean? I mean, they're just sort of like laying out what their process is going to be or what, what are they actually explaining here? It lays out the rules, the airplane design rules or what the airplane has to meet. Those, that's huge in any aircraft design effort is knowing what the aircraft needs to meet in terms of performance and having those identified early in the process instead of being more like a game, a guessing game, and it's developed as you're going along is a big risk reduction effort. So, and, and Brer has been, I think, historically really good at getting the framework in place before spending a lot of money. And this is another example of that. On the eve, they're getting the framework in place, what the aircraft has to do so they can design it to meet that criteria without spending extra money guessing at it. Because the worst thing, and I have seen this, the worst thing that can happen is the certification authority realizes that there's a particular way your airplane performs that is maybe different, unique, and they start writing rules about it, about how it's going to perform. And you're like, well, geez, we have already spent $100 million getting to this point. We're going to have to change it? And the answer is typically, yeah, you do have to change it. Those things can bite you really hard. And the FAA, I, I got to give credit to the FAA also. More recently, the FAA has been very proactive about that and, and getting those rules defined in, EV, in the eVTOL market in particular. I think what I'm seeing come out from the FAA is really good stuff that allows the designers to design uh, to a, a minimum standard and to uh, not be too prescriptive. So it allows a lot of new ideas to come about. And Embraer is doing the same thing uh, with the certification authority in Brazil. That's fantastic. Good on everybody there. So do you think Eve is still on track to meet some of their goals? Obviously, every company is trying to get their vehicle out the door as fast as possible. But uh, obviously, Eve has been backed. You know, they, they were a spinoff of Embraer. Um, or I guess they're still in the process of, of going public as a separate entity. I'm not sure if they're actually public yet as their own entity. But yeah, but obviously, they have a lot of, you know, they come from that well-defined, you know, aircraft manufacturer. So uh, this is going to, I assume, keep them on track. And do you think they're still going to meet their goal of being, I don't know what their, is it 2023 for EVE is their goal or maybe 2024? I don't have it in front of me. I thought it was 24 to get something up in the air. I mean, certification wise, it's going to be more like 2026, I would guess right now. Now, saying we're in 2022 right now, it's going to be a four-year kind of effort. But they're doing the, they're doing the process in the right order. They're not building an airplane, then realizing we got to go certify it and then starting over again and 
those things just eat up cash and time and engineers and and it doesn't benefit the bottom line and, and the airplane business I, don't, I keep saying the same thing here but the airplane business is a business and we can't spend money on things that don't return an invest that investment and this is why uh, if you look at Joby this week they're talking about starting certification tests and so they put out this big flyer and I think everybody in their first head is going oh Joby's flying certification test no 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 not at all what they're doing is they're pulling apart composite samples to show the composite structure is as strong as they say that it is that's a certification test like it is it's a valid certification test and it tells you you sort of start small and work you up to the big things so that the fact that um that Embraer and Joby and, and Archer, for that matter, and a number and Whisk for a number of these companies are going down the proper pathway shows you that the uh, management of those companies understands what the process is. It, it isn't like they haven't been around the airplane business or they bring they brought people in that understand what those steps are. That's how you save money long term is to get the right people in the right slots who can accelerate the program without having to repeat it. Key, super key. Well, speaking of people, and this was an interesting story because we covered aviation last week, the CEO of aviation, uh, Omer Bar Yohe, is leaving the company rather abruptly. And this is just before their first flight was scheduled to take place, I guess, either in the coming, you know, the coming weeks. Um, but Alan, this seems like a pretty abrupt shakeup of the company and their leadership. It's hard to read on this one. Uh, just full disclosure, I'm helping them a little bit on some lightning protection stuff, really early stuff. Uh, and I, I don't know much about the internal workings of the company. In fact, I know nothing about the internal workings of the company. Uh, but in, in, in all of these companies, it does just not make it specific to aviation here. In all these companies, you have outside investors and you have a set of milestones that they're trying to meet to keep the investment money coming. It, it feels like the lack of first flight before the end of the year was a milestone that, that the investors didn't like. And, they, and, and we're in February, sort of headed towards March right now. Uh, the sooner they can get in the air, the more comfortable investors feel because they have, I now have a flying aircraft, a flying prototype. Uh, so whatever's holding that back, it makes investors nervous because they feel like they're not going to have a return on investment. And with the economic conditions, the way that they are, investments are getting a little bit tighter. Everybody's being a little more cautious with their money. It's not a great time for aircraft development because of that. And it's just because of this inflationary period that we're in right now, it, it forces everybody, it forces all investors to relook at their portfolio and say, okay, what's my long-term play? What's my short-term play? And do I have any of my investments that are underperforming or not meeting their milestones. Well, not meeting first flight, it fits into that not meeting the milestone thing. Who knows what's going on internally? I'm sure the engineering staff, from what I know, is extremely competent and is doing the right things. So it feels like an investor top level management disagreement about the speed of the program. And I've seen this in pretty much every aircraft program I've ever worked on. <laughs> That's, has that same sort of conflict at the top going on. And it's, it's, it's not, uh, you know, it's not tiddlywinks, right? It's full, it's a, aviation is a full contact sport. And sometimes people get lost in that. It, it's unfortunate because I think a lot of the people that had driven aviation to where, to where it is today are really smart, right? To do that, to get to this point is, is brilliant. It, it just, the timing sometimes doesn't work out. 
unfortunately. Yeah, it seems like that's one of the hazards of having to get investment money. And for a lot of these companies that you've been talking about, the more, you know, if you need that billion dollars or a couple billion dollars to get that aircraft to market, you're going to have a lot of people helping you get there financially and they're going to have a say. And you hear that from different podcasts like, you know, you and I both love Guy Raz's podcast, How I Built This. And you just hear all the different stories of how, you know, the investors have, you know, great effect and they can be great partners or they can be really difficult partners. Just it just depends. Every company is different where, you know, they lose some autonomy because, again, they've got now lots of other people to keep happy and and they have to be good stewards of the money that they were given. So, yeah, it's it's a, definitely a, a big challenge, I'm sure. Yeah, it's it's not easy. And like I said, it doesn't. I don't think it has a reflection on the people. Uh, it has more to do with just the timing of where the economy is and where the programs are. And it's just a really tough place to be. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a review. Subscribe wherever you listen on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher. And we'll see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardarrow.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.